Hello everyone, it's great to be back again. We're continuing on the series, The Dispensation of Sons. Um, today we'll focus on the manifestation of sons of God. Um, last week we were talking about transform, transition and conform. And the preceding week before that, we were talking about sons of God, who, how and why. Um, let's just pray quickly um, before we get into it. Father Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to spend time with you. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence. As we're gathered in our groups, we just ask Holy Spirit that you take full control of this meeting, Holy Spirit. We acknowledge your presence. We ask Holy Spirit that you grant us understanding, understanding to know exactly what it is you're saying, not our thoughts, not my thoughts, not anyone's thoughts, but for the spirit of truth to be revealed in what it is we're discussing regarding the dispensation of sons and what we have been discussing. Holy Spirit, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you connect the dots for everyone, Lord. Connect the dots for everyone. Let them see exactly what it is you're saying in this time, in this era, in 2021, and as we progress into 2022, Lord. Speak to everyone's heart that is listening to this, everyone that, who's committed to the process of transforming and being transformed into your image. In your mighty name, Yeshua, we have prayed. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you very much, everyone. So we're back. We'll be talking about the manifestation of sons of God. I'd like to make a quick statement on, on that. And here it is. Once sonship embraced, transformation and transitioning begin. Then at a set time, according to the Lord, manifestation of mature sons of God commences in the spiritual and in the physical realms. Um, and there's some scripture to back um, this thought up. And that is, I'll start with John 1 verse 14. I'll be reading from Bible in basic English. That is BBE. And it reads, and so the word became flesh and took a place among us for a time. And we saw his glory, such glory as is given to an only son by his father, saw it to be true and full of grace. And that's in reference to Christ himself. Second scripture would look in relation to this is First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'll be reading from my usual translation, that is LITV, Green's Literal Translation. It reads, And confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifested in flesh, was justified in spirit, was seen by angels, was proclaimed among nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And this particular um, scripture um, that Paul wrote to Timothy, um, the one who he was discipling and mentoring, and talks about how Christ manifested in the flesh. So there was a physical aspect to Christ's manifestation. There was also a spiritual aspect. Here it says, was justified in spirit, was seen by angels, that's spiritual, um, that's the spiritual realm, was witnessing him and watching him, was proclaimed among nations, that's physical, was believed on in the world, that's physical, was taken up in glory, and that's the ascension when he went up in a cloud. Um, another scripture that we can look in our study time is Galatians 4, 1 to 7. And the next point I wanted to make, um, because the whole perspective and the whole point on manifestation, on the manifestation of sons of God, it all boils down to how Christ manifested, right? And a lot of cues in this, in, in, in the dispensation of sons and manifestation of sons of God, we're, all the cues here are from how Christ manifested. So um, there's a lot from how Christ manifested, how he came to the earth, the models he used, and how those models um, guided him as he began to do the thing that God told him to do, the Father told him to do, specifically also some of the things that were already done in the spiritual realm. Scripture says in Revelation that the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. So that means what was already done in the heavens, in the spiritual realm, Christ was coming to manifest it at a particular time. So a lot of cues on 
the manifestation of sons of God are taking from Christ's life and how he manifested. So everything is just based on scripture. And um, so the point I'd like to make now is this, is Yeshua's life demonstrated sonship, transformation, and transitioning, and manifestations. Through the Holy Spirit's manifestations, through the lives of mature sons of God, there is the model or pattern that is evident for us to discover. Sons of God begin to manifest as temple gateways for the Spirit of God to move to birth and build the purposes of God. And that's a mouthful, but what I'm just saying here is Christ followed a particular pattern. There was a model. There was a time in which Christ came, and there was a time in which it had to be achieved. Um, the physical, the spiritual realm aligned to that particular time, and the Holy Spirit also manifests through mature sons of God in a similar fashion. Once they're transformed, where things are birthed in their spirit, then they can birth um, physically. And one of the patterns or models that um, I believe is evident for us is, you know, the Son of God manifested as a temple. Christ is considered to be the temple in heaven, but also through scripture, I hope to show us how this is some sort of model that we can learn a lot from in the times of manifestations that are upon us for mature sons to manifest. Um, the slides will be shared, so um, if I'm going at a fast pace, please feel free to pause, discuss, but also please go back to the slides that are shared. I really, really want to emphasize that there is a lot of information in these sessions in the dispensation of Sons of God, and as much as I'd like to simplify it and just have one central point, there's so much to cover, and I can't cover it all in just three sessions, in three one-hour sessions, right? Um, High Life World is working on creating discipleship material for us to use um, in, 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 in the church and widespread throughout all our groups and house churches across the world. Um, I'm saying this just because it is important and imperative that we go through this video and go through the slides repeatedly. If you want to give yourself a gift in addition to your rest during the holiday season, I recommend you listen to these teachings, not because it's me, but because of the content that's here, and you go through the slides re repetitively. I'd recommend you go a minimum of three to five times, and just so that the Holy Spirit can speak to you and a lot of the stuff can sink in. Um, so yeah, um, part of the model, and I want to just map out quickly this whole concept about manifestation of sons of God, and I want to introduce what happened to Jacob. I'll start with Jacob, then we talk about Christ, then we talk about sons of God. Just how this whole model about the temples, how it was something that God had intended for a very long time, um, and he gradually began to unravel it through the lives of people that were to fulfill purpose for him. And the first person is Jacob. Jacob is where we see the introduction of Bethel, that is the house of God. It's called the house of God in Genesis 28. We wouldn't go through all that scripture, but scripture here, if you're following, is Genesis 28, 10 to 13, Genesis 28, 16 to 19, Genesis 32, verses 1 to 2, Genesis 32, 24 to 30, and Genesis 35, 67, Genesis 35, 9 to 13. And all these scriptures, just giving you a summation of it, one of the things that they do, just a summary, is that, you know, and I'm not going to talk a lot about how Jacob is perceived and how people perceive Jacob because there's a lot of error regarding that. Jacob being considered to be a supplanter and whatnot. The meaning of Jacob in Hebrew, the clear Hebrew states he's a heel catcher. And what that means is when he was being born, when he was coming out of the womb, the Bible tells us that he held on to the, to the foot of his brother, to the leg of his brother. And that's where his name comes from. It doesn't come from him doing something wrong or it was tied to him doing something wrong. The name actually comes from him holding on to the firstborn, which is kind of very interesting in terms of the word God gives his mother 
when she was having a pregnancy that the younger, the older will serve the younger. Um, so yeah, so Jacob has this thing, everything is happening, he's, he's taking flight, he's received the firstborn's blessings, um, albeit he had done some dodgy stuff to get it, he had impersonated his brother, um, and as he's going, he has a dream, and in that dream, you know, we know what happens, the ladder, he sees the heavens open, the Lord, the Bible is clear, the Lord peers through, um, through that portal, and looks down on Jacob, as Jacob sees angels ascend and descend, and speaks to him, talks to him about his journey and how he's going and he'll come back. But what is very interesting is that when Jacob wakes up, Jacob calls it Bethel. The old name was Luz, but Jacob calls it Bethel, which translates to house of God. So Jacob immediately sees this experience, sees that particular place as a portal that linked the physical realm to the spiritual realm, and he immediately calls it Bethel, which is the house of God. And that's interesting because this is almost about a millennia, actually, almost about a millennia from when this happened to when Bethel will be fully formed and the house of God will be set up, right? Um, all of that. So it's interesting that God was sowing a seed, connecting what he had in heaven with a seed on the earth through Jacob about the house of God. And the next person, of course, that highlights is, this is Christ himself. Scriptures for this is John 1, 47 to 51. Matthew 3, 13 to 17. And what I really just highlight here, um, um, John 1, 47 to 51, sees Jesus Christ make a reference to Bethel that Jacob has a dream about, about the ladder, the bridge that connects both realms and the portal in the heavens that was open and the earth itself and how there was a ladder that connected it and the, and the angels going. Christ actually references this when he was talking to Nathaniel after Nathaniel came from under the fig tree. When God, when Christ says explicitly that he had seen him there, and you know, I mean, for those who haven't watched The Chosen, The Chosen season two does a good job in, in, in just trying to give us an illustration, not saying that it's perfect or it's accurate, but it gives an illustration of Nathaniel under the tree and when he met Christ and Christ telling him um, he saw him under the fig tree. Um, what is important there and why we're highlighting this is Christ makes reference to that makes reference to the dream about Bethel, to, to Jacob's proclamation and declaration about Bethel and ascribes that to himself, you know, saying that angels will ascend and descend upon him, that Nathaniel would see angels ascend and descend upon him. I've searched through scripture. I didn't go through Apocrypha, but I've just searched through a lot of scripture trying to find out where that happened and I've not really found anything. The closest thing I found to that is the Holy Spirit descending on Christ at the baptism. Um, but Christ made it clear that angels would ascend and descend upon him, almost making reference to him being a temple, also a house, because the house of God is the temple of God, isn't it? Scripture tells us there's an interchange through the Old Covenant, through the Old Testament, and also the New Testament. So Christ makes reference to himself and the house of God and the dream Jacob has, obviously, and decreeing that you know this was something he was going to fulfill. So I like to call that the gateway temple. That's what I, I've, I've termed it. And just because of the gateway, the portal, and because Christ is also at the temple. Scripture tells us in Revelation, but also in reference to the portal open that Jacob speaks about, Jacob calling that location the house of God and Christ referring to that. And the final element in, in, in this model of the temple gateway that I'm talking about as a, as a model of manifestation of sons of God based on what Christ did and how Christ manifested as that is the sons of God. So we've got the sons of God, the immature ones, and the sons of God, the mature ones. So I just call it sons of God, immature and mature. And when we talk about the immature, we're talking about those who have just given their life to Christ. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3, 
we made mention of it um, in, in a couple of sessions and how who the sons of God were. When you give your life to Christ, you are a son of God, albeit you are immature, clearly stated. You know, um, in, when Paul wrote those letters, there was no chapter three. That came later on for categorizations and for referencing, right? But when Paul wrote that letter, he was talking from Galatians 3 at the end of the chapter, talking about how if you give your life to Christ, submit and accept Jesus Christ, you know, you are a son of God, right? Nothing to do with your gender. You are a son of God. You enter that place of sonship. But you are immature because he talks about it using the reference system of KJV. He talks about it in, in Galatians 4 again, about no difference between being an heir, which is one who has accepted Christ, and the slave, right? Maturity is what um, differentiates um, both types of sons. So sons of God here, we know that through scripture, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17, Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, there's reference to us, those of us who respond to Christ's love as temples, right? We're referenced as temples where the Holy Spirit dwells, right? And he also talks about, script Paul also talks about us being bricks, being built into the house of God. Guess what the house of God is in Hebrew? That phrase is Bethel. So you can clearly see the link from Jacob to Christ to us about this concept of us being the house of God where the Spirit dwells and also being temples of God. Um, all referencing Christ um, as that. Um, so yeah, so that's that. I, I just wanted to create the link from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, sorry, not the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament through, what do you call it, Jacob to Christ um, and to us as sons of God, immature and immature ones who have the potential um, to be mature and demonstrate this when it's time to manifest. What I'm going to do next, we're going to have a slide come up. And I'm going to go a bit, I'm just going to touch on it. I can't go into all, all the entire detail of the spectrum of revealed temples. And the reason why I'm doing that is to, one, plug the holes between the three I mentioned, Jacob, Yeshua, and us Christians, um, sons of God. Um, but I wanted to plug the holes so you can see that this was always part of the model that God initially wanted. Um, there's evidence through scripture to prove this. So I'm just going to touch on it lightly. Um, and I hope the, the, the slide will come up um, just illustrating the image of revealed temples. So um, I'll quickly touch on that. And we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. So we've got about six revealed temples. I skipped the seventh one because there's no reference point for that. I don't have, there's no scripture for that. So I skipped the seventh one. And that is when we're complete, we're in complete union, manifesting in complete union both spiritually and physically in heaven after the whole earth is changed, the new earth, the new Jerusalem and all of that, right? Everything stops kind of like at Revelation 21. So from then on, I do know that there will be a union of temples where we as the smaller temples completely merge with Christ as the temple, the template of the temple, the only temple in heaven, which Moses saw and everyone else saw. They'll be emerging there, and I call that the seven revealed temple, but I have no clue what that looks like. It's just based on scripture, how John gets the revelation, and it points to that. But I did not include it in the diagram you're seeing on your screen, and also in your slides, if you have your slides open already. But I'll talk about the six. So the first one is the Garden of Eden. I know the Garden of Eden, a lot of people talk about it. They're looking for a location. Um, I believe that Pastor Carlton has also spoken about it. I haven't heard that message yet. But um, one of the things about the Garden of Eden, I know people are looking for a physical location. Some people say it's just a spiritual location. Um, and there are all kinds of schools of thought um, around that. But one of the things about the Garden that is in Scripture that is important for us to recognize 
and it's important for us to know is it was an implied temple. And there are many reasons for that. I'll say that. Um, I'll just read a couple of things. So the Garden of Eden was the first implied temple of God the Lord created for Adam and Eve. Um, it was for visitation, for communing, and, and intimacy with his sons. And we can find that in Genesis 2, verses 8 to 18a. And why do I bring the Garden of Eden as a temple? And, you know, people are like, oh, but it wasn't a temple, it was a place. You know, the purpose of a temple is to the place where people were to meet with the Lord. That's the where to meet, right? They were to meet with a spiritual being, where to meet with God. That was the purpose. The Garden of Eden fits that bill. I personally believe regarding the Garden of Eden, I believe the Garden of Eden was a physical location, but it also had a spiritual portal, a spiritual aspect to it that cannot be replicated again, um, so to speak. Uh, sorry, when I say cannot be replicated again, I'm talking about in terms of from Genesis 1. And there are too many elements that have changed in terms of um, when sin came in through disobedience. It actually fractured the very fragment, the very fragment of the garden, but it also fractured and tore apart the very fabric of all of creation. So from the earth to the seas to the animals, there are just too many elements that became fractured and that tore from the original state that it's impossible to even if you found, let's just assume, let's suspend our thinking, assume you find a physical location. Some people say Africa, some people say here, there. It really doesn't matter because creation has been fragmented. It is fragmented now, right? And it has to be restored completely. Sons of God had to do that, by the way. Um, but um, what is beautiful about it, that it was a place where there was a merging of the spiritual and the physical. Um, and if you go through Genesis 1, 2, 3, you begin to see elements some of the rivers mentioned in there that were coming out went to the whole of the earth. So there's, there's proof there to show that there was a physical side to it, a practical physical side, but there's also enough proof to show us that it was also spiritual. Um, you know. And I, I say that because you know, there are a couple of things that are clear. A temple is where people visit, the Lord visits, um, and he communes with us. So it, it, I call it an implied temple. Um, I, can't go, I can't go into all of the information about that. We'll probably need a whole session, sessions for that, just to go through scriptures from Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 3, and the aspect of the cherubim, the flaming sword, the four rivers that split from that river. And there's just too many things that wouldn't be able to do that. So I'm, I'm suggesting that, you know, the Garden of Eden was an implied temple. The second revealed temple in scripture since creation is the tabernacle. So from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve left, by the way, Adam and Eve were immature sons of God, albeit physically perfect, but they were immature. There was a test they were meant to pass. They were meant to mature. They were meant to, they were meant to pass a test to get into maturity, the first stage of maturity. I strongly believe that. And that had to do with the test of the tree of life and the test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God literally raising those trees in the center of the garden. So, I consider them to be immature sons of God, albeit physically perfect. God still wanted them to mature, and that's why we have the concept Paul brings on of the first Adam and Christ being the last Adam that passed the complete test of maturity. Um, so the second revealed temple, according to scripture, I believe, is the tabernacle. Um, so from the Garden of Eden up until when Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage um, from Egypt, um, Moses was allowed to come up higher. He was allowed to see shadows of the temple. And based on those shadows, he was able to document them. And he came back and God actually, the Holy Spirit, kept talking to him about what the temple should look like. Um, and that was a, it was a portable and mobile temple. It was a temple of God allowed to be made 
by humanity based on the shadows Moses was permitted to see in that era. Um, and that was when the old covenant was just about to begin. God was bringing up a shadow of a type of people and that we're going to manifest a, a manifestation of a, through a shadow of a people. And he had to give them a, a, a somewhat shadow of a temple. And that can be found in Exodus 25, chapter 25 to 31. And the next revealed temple is the temple of Jerusalem. And you can see that all these are punctuated by years, right? By long periods of time, right? From the Garden of Eden, I call it an implied temple, to the tabernacle that God revealed as a temple um, where they were to worship and offer sacrifice. From that place to the temple of Jerusalem, there was also, you know, a span of time up until when David came around. Um, and the temple of Jerusalem was the first immovable temple, one that you couldn't carry around where all Israelites, the people of God then, had to come to make special sacrifices during specific feasts and certain things. People had to come to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem became a central point where the temple, an immovable temple was. It was also called where the place where God had decided to ascribe his name to, specifically on the earth for visitation. Um, so the movable temple built according to plans King David handed to Solomon. I believe these blueprints were received by King David um, based on what David saw, whether through visions, dreams, or actual visitations. Um, we, we, we do not know. The Bible is sort of quiet, even though we know David had some of these experiences. That can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 to 29 and 2 Chronicles chapter 2 to 7, from the blueprints being handed to the building of that physical temple, um, which was an escalated or, uh, how could I put it? It was a progressive revelation of the shadow they had in the tabernacle that Moses and the Israelites and Aaron were moving around. And the third revealed temple is Christ himself. So from that time up until Christ himself, the temple of God in earthly manifestation, the fulfillment of every preceding temple of God from which every other temple was and is fashioned. So Christ begins to confine himself to human flesh and he comes. We'd already spoken about Jacob and Christ and how Christ referenced that um, earlier on. The scriptures here are John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22, Revelations 21, 22 to 23, where in Revelations 21, verses 22 to 23, it speaks about Christ as, a te as the temple. Um, in John 2, 13 to 22, there's a revelation, and I, I really love that story, and we're going to touch on it um, briefly, I hope, later on. But that's when Christ appears before the previous shadow, which was the physical temple. Um, and he was talking and he chased the money lenders and all of that. And sometimes there's a lot of focus on the money lenders and how he chased all those people and people focus on, oh my, the house of God. You know, there's Christ talking about the house of God again, Bethel, referencing Jacob and what Jacob named. And a lot of times there's a lot of focus on that element of it, but people actually miss, they, they miss a massive alignment that was going on. The temple himself in human flesh was standing before the last revelation of a revealed temple. That is the temple of Solomon, as it was called, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, so that's the one, two, three, four. That's the fourth revealed temple. The fifth revealed temple is the sons of God, that's us, through the new covenant, where because Christ came, he was able to begin to create temples where he, the spirit of God would dwell. So the immature and mature ones that are now the temples of God after the template of Christ, Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17. And the sixth revealed temple, the union, that's the union of the groom and bride. That's groom being Christ and the bride being us. And the wedding of the groom and bride resulting in a consummation of infinite oneness. Revelations 21, 2 to 3, 22 to 23. Like I said, 
there is um, um, a fusion, a communion, a, a consummation that happens between us as temples and us as brides and Christ as the groom and Christ as the temple from which all temples are fashioned. So um, I, I wanted to go through all of that just for us to see that this concept of temples as part of the plan of the manifestation of God is something that started since the beginning of creation and it's something that will also punctuate and end um, um, what we see in the Bible, right? And when everything changes and Christ comes from, for his own. I just feel it was important that we also see that, that this is not just some new concept that is being plucked out of obscurity and being made to fit something we think it should fit or I think it should fit. This is something that we can see throughout scripture, throughout millennia, depending on how you count the calendar. Is it 6,000 years? Are we approaching the end of 6,000 years or 7,000 years? Or however you look at it, that this is something that Christ had, the Father had been doing, Christ had been doing throughout that timeline of creation to date. So after going through that, I've said all of that just to say this, that mature sons of God are temple gateways, right? Just as Christ was a or the temple gateway, linking the spiritual to the physical, you know, we like to say, oh, let's bring down heaven to earth, you know what I'm saying? And as our vision states, you know, um, we are here to build um, an army of mature sons of God, equipping them with thought and ability so that they can build institutions of life, bringing heaven down to earth. Do you understand? And you begin to understand why the phrase, the temple gateways also comes into play right there and then. Um, so because Christ is the temple gateway, like I've explained and gone through all of that, um, I said all of that to say this, that we, are also, we also have the opportunity to manifest as temple gateways as Christ himself manifested. So as the temple, that's us, or house of God, us again, church and body, us still, we are also a doorway, gate or portal to and of the kingdom of God. So literally that's the kingdom of heaven, bringing the kingdom of heaven down to, to the kingdom of earth, right? And we're going to do that. God wants to do that through us as temples. We're already temples, right? The Bible is clear on that. Um, and like I said earlier on, we've got Ezekiel's vision of the temple of water, temple and water. Um, I have two illustrations of temple gateways. So the vision Ezekiel had, very famous vision, Ezekiel 47 verses 1 to 12. I'm not going to read that scripture. You can read it um, as you study later on. But, you know, that vision Ezekiel had, you know, illustrates how the water was trickling from underneath the altar, from the Holy of Holies, according to the old according to the temple of Jerusalem that was built, the immovable temple. And God gave him a vision as how the water began to trickle. What I find amazing about that temple gateway illustration that God gave Ezekiel is the water didn't just flow out and just go in whatever direction. The Bible tells us that it went, it turned left, went towards a particular western gate because the, 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 the temples obviously had gates on each side, right? Based on the immovable temple. If you study that, you'll be able to see that they had gateways, they had gates, access points in the north, the west, the east, the south. They used the compass to actually decipher the gates of the temple. So when you read that vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47 verses 1 to 12, one of the things you begin to see is how the water begins to flow from underneath the altar, goes towards the west, turns around. And I, I literally had to plot, I had to try to plot it, right? Because... I just believe I'm one of those people that if I read something in scripture, I want to try to, um, I really want to etch it in my heart and in my memory. So I plotted it and saw how the, temp the water actually literally turned before coming out through another gate. I believe it was the northern gate. Please don't quote me on that, but if I remember correctly, the vision showed how the water, the trickle of water going from underneath the altar went through a particular direction, taking turns to go through a particular gate. 
I really believe he could have just gone through one gate straight away, which it needed to go. But God was illustrating something. The Lord was illustrating something to Ezekiel. And of course, we know that the further it went from that temple, the deeper it got. And there's so many schools of thought. There's so many revelations that people have received about, you know, the vision of the, Ezekiel's vision of the temple and the water and the river. There's so many, there's so many revelations that were revealed or that have been revealed about it. What is beautiful about that is, you know, I use that as one from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, that was, that is interesting for us to see how the temple, that temple was used, some form of temple gateway that God gave Ezekiel. Remember, they were in bondage in Babylon, so God was referring to the temple um, as an illustration for manifestation of what he was going to do in the earth, how they're going to be restored. But also, more importantly, interesting, if you read that, if you study that vision properly, is how God was going to use the water as it increased in depth to heal the earth, to heal the land. To you know, it was it was very illustrative, extremely illustrative. It was for its time, and I believe it has also been applied to future, to future, to to the future, up until this time, up until Israel's restoration, post that, and even up until where we are today. Many people have received revelations as to how that applies. Um, another illustration, and this is from the um, New Testament, and I think I mentioned it earlier on when I was going through the revealed temples, is when Christ appeared and drove the money changers, you know, and those that were doing all of that for the sacrifices, the doves and all, like I said earlier on, there is usually a focus on, oh, about it was a den of thieves and the house of prayer was being transferred to that. But there was also something way bigger than that going on, and this is what it was, you know. The time of Passover was coming, right? Passover, if you understand it, goes all the way back to Egypt when the lambs were being, sorry, when the firstborns were being killed and the Lord told them to sacrifice a lamb, you know, mark their doorposts with the blood of that lamb and that when the angel of death comes, he will pass over the houses where he sees the blood of the lamb on the door. And that's very interesting, right? So they were about to, that feast was coming over. Was, that feast was coming up, you know, the celebration and the Passover was coming up, right? And Christ happens to be in Jerusalem. And right there in Jerusalem, as the feast was approaching, everybody's preparing, right? All these things were things that were needed to, for you to have the right sacrifices, for those who couldn't afford it, they'll buy totals. There was, there was an entire ecosystem, excuse me, surrounding the Passover and the Temple of Jerusalem for you to be able to offer your sacrifices, right? It was an ecosystem that was to ensure that people were fulfilling the law and they didn't, they didn't, they didn't um, flaunt the law, right? They're trying to follow the letter of the law. So that's why the temple had all those things. You know, and many people think, oh yeah, commerce and whatnot. You need to understand the backdrop of that story. All of that was put in there because it was a logical solution for people who were coming far, who couldn't meet the rites and observances of the law and the Passover, where the dove had to be without blemish, the lambs had to be without blemish. You know, there was an entire system, right? And here you have Christ, the temple, standing in front of the physical temple of Solomon in Jerusalem when Passover is coming. And, you know, that's the alignment I was alluding to earlier on, is that there was an alignment. The Passover from before the law started in Exodus um, to the Passover being fulfilled in the temple of Jerusalem where they had all the sacrifices and people could buy and there were, there were temple coins, almost like cryptocurrency, right? There were particular coins you'd have to purchase to buy goods from, from those selling the doves and whatever it was, right? And then there was Christ himself. So there was an alignment where Christ himself as the temple was saying, this no longer is sustainable, right? 
It had been allowed for a time, but here is the temple himself. The temple himself is standing in your midst in front of the previous revelation of the old temple where God used to manifest himself, right? More importantly, the Passover also symbolized the sacrifice of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, where judgment passed over Israel. So there was Christ. I mean, we literally see Christ fulfilling Passover, the temple, as he is the temple. The Passover was about to come. He is the sacrificial lamb. You know, he was fulfilling. He's the lamb. He's the sacrifice. He's the temple that is happening in. He's the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, like we discussed in our first session about the identity of sons of God and the elements of that. But I'm banging on this point just for you to see how Christ was fulfilling this temple gateway model that I'm talking about in every aspect. There's so many aspects that he fulfilled in every way. And why is this important for us? It's the model I'm recommending, I'm suggesting, based on my research, based on studying the word, just based on seeing how Christ did things, you know, there's something about the temple gateway that is necessary for bringing heaven to earth, through us, in our spheres, in our homes, in our families, in our businesses, in our careers, wherever sphere of influence we find ourselves, that model of the temple gateway is, is critical, is pivotal. I'm not saying that that's the only way the Lord does his miracles, no. What I'm saying is that when you see how Christ did it, how Christ matured, and when the time of maturation came and he began to manifest the promise of God, right, for three years, right, he alluded and spoke about the temple, alluded to what, to what Jacob saw. He alluded to this in John chapter 2, right, when he was walking, you know, and he alluded to it in, to Nathaniel in John chapter 1. In chapter 2, he, in, in, in subsequent chapters, he talks about it when he, you know, when he talks about it, like, I will destroy this temple, like literally talking about the temple of Jerusalem, and in three days I'll raise it. Nobody understood it. The disciples didn't understand it. The leaders did like, what are you talking about? It took so many years to build this. But later, John understands and said he was talking about himself, like, I'm ending this covenant and I'm bringing a new beginning that will allow you people to be temple gateways like I am. Um, so manifestation by sons of God is a type of birthing. I said that earlier on. It involves, and this is where we're getting into some of the practicality. And some of it is already lingo and vocab you already use about, oh, being able to birth the promises of God, building things. But I, I'm trying to bring everything. I'm trying, I'm, try, I'm trying to convene everything. I'm trying to bring everything into a laser-like focus on this, right? Manifestation by sons of God is a type of birthing. That's clear to see. It involves the release from one season into another season, right? A gateway or a gate is a pivotal illustration of this. Why? And that's why I said temple gateways is the manifestation of building involves the alteration of one state where you change one state into another by either reassembling the things in that space or in that state, the elements of that state, by clearing the things in that state or in that space, by constructing something new, or even tearing down things to build something new. And what I find interesting about that, because that really reminds me of Jeremiah, isn't it? Jeremiah 1, you know, um, it says, I've anointed you to pull down, you know, I've put you over nations to tear down, to build, to pull down, you know, to, you know, and he talks about something similar. That is the breaking down of a state so that he could build something else. The cutting down of something so that he could plant something else. You know, and it's interesting that these seem to come together through this also. Okay. For some more practicalities about um, this and temple gateways and maturing sons of God, um, I've said it before in the previous session. Um, for those of you, please, I hope everyone's gone through um, the slides and the teaching that was shared um, previously. 
on transform, transition, and conform. But it was mentioned there, principalities and authorities of darkness respond to mature sons of God. And the reason why I'm bringing that about is, you know, once you understand that there's an alteration of a state, right? And as you mature, you want to follow the model of a temple gateway. You know, principalities and authorities of darkness respond to mature sons of God. And there's proof of that. You know, Legion responds to Yeshua in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Um, I want to go through all these scriptures. You can go through in your quiet time, in your own time as you study. Death responds to Yeshua in Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. Unclean spirits respond to Yeshua in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. And of course, the evil spirit, a high-ranking evil spirit, acknowledges Paul and Yeshua. And that's in Acts 19, verses 11 to 20. Um, there is something, you know, the Acts, the story of Acts 9, 19, 11 to 20, I think is just a, a hilarious story to me. Um, you know, um, the sons of Sceva getting their butts whooped um, by this principality or this evil, high-ranking evil spirit. He was one, this spirit and this man that was possessed was one, known, he was known in the region, right? He was known in the region. It was not like something that just suddenly happened. He seemed to be known in the region. What I find amazing about this story in the way principalities and and authorities of darkness responded is, if you go through that story in Acts 19, 11 to 20, th- th- there's just so much amazing revelation there. I love the way Luke captures it. You know, is when they were there and Paul had to come and there were miracles happening, right? And these seven sons of Sceva, sons of a high priest who used to perform ex- exorcism, right? It seems like they, there was, and I've done some research, you can, there was a branch of Judaism that seemed to practice exorcism. Um, in terms of exercising demons from people. It was a practice that used to happen then. Was it 100% successful? I don't know. But it seems like it was something that they, they do. The scripture there tells us in Acts 19. And they seem to have been prayed for by Paul or they had received the Holy Spirit somehow, accepted Christ, you know. But here's the catch. Based on that, receiving the Holy Spirit, they felt, okay, based on their previous knowledge, their previous understanding, they wanted to do what they were doing, <laughs> empowered by this new relationship they had with God, with Christ, and with this Holy Spirit had been working through Paul. So they kind of put two and two together. Okay, we've accepted Jesus Christ. You know, we're believers now. We're children of God or sons of God, right? You know what? We can do the things and help people. How do they want to help people? Let's go cast that demon out, that high-ranking spirit from that man that's possessed that everybody knows about. And they proceeded, seven of them. Why you need seven, I don't know, but hey, they probably thought, you know, you know, strength in numbers, right? Strength in numbers. So they went forward and they went there. And when they got to the location where this gentleman was who was possessed, they, you know, they got there, da, da, da. And, you know, it's amazing how this is documented. That the possessed man, I believe, was a high-ranking spirit, evil spirit, I believe, high up in the hierarchy. This talks about how, who are you guys, right? Like, seriously? Bear in mind, they had accepted, they had received Christ to some degree, right? We know that they had confessed it. They might have, they might have had ulterior motives, but the scripture is clear that they had received the Holy Spirit or they had been prayed upon, hands laid on them. But they felt they could do something. And this is where the immaturity we're talking about, we've been talking about for years, immaturity and immaturity, right? You're a son of God, you've accepted him, that's fair, but you're not mature yet. But they went out to go address certain things that only mature sons can address. Now, I'm not saying you can't pray if you're in a situation. I'm not saying that until you get mature, you can't do certain things. No. By all means, as you're being discipled, you know, you begin to learn things. God begins to show you things. You read your Bible. Your faith begins to increase. Yes, you will pray for things. Things will happen. But this is a very peculiar story that highlights maturity 
you know, and the identity of those who are mature are mature sons of God. And this principality or this high-ranking spirit responds, Paul, I know. Christ, I know. Who are you guys coming to address me? So he, he acknowledges their maturity. And of course, we know the rest of the story beats them up. But what is amazing, even more amazing, is the story now leaks that these sons of Sceva have been beating up, right? And that this demon or this possessed man, the evil spirit, beat these people. If you read it, it says that when they heard the story, the people, they went to bring out all their occultic things, right? Their books, their charms, their idols, and they put it together and they burnt it. They didn't get priests to do that. It was the act of darkness. You know, can, you, can you see how God can use anything to, to trump darkness? Where the act of darkness beating immature sons caused people in that region to do away and commit to a relationship with Christ. I just find, I always find that story um, exhilarating and extremely funny. So I thought I should share that. But anyways, we're back to the dispensation of sons of God. Um, I'm sure you've probably noticed there are no pauses for discussion questions because we only have one slide for discussion points and that will come at the end of the session. But the next thing is, like I said, temple gateways. The spirit of God begins to manifest as a temple gateway. We already know the Spirit of God dwells in us, right? Once we accept Christ as our personal Lord and Savior and respond to His love, we also know that we're the house of God. So the Spirit of God dwells in us, in our hearts, right? But the Spirit of God also wants to flow out of us, right? And there needs to be an access point. A gate is literally an access point. Hence, temple gateways. Again, why that term is, is, is being used. So the point, I'm going to make a couple of points here. Um, sons of God begin to manifest as temple gateways for the Spirit of God to move to birth and build the purposes of God. The way we declare his decrees, that is God's judgments, is linked to creation's response to the sons of God. Our declarations can be words and or actions. Um, so I've got some scripture here. How and why a manifested decree works. You know, I think it's important for us to know that. So it's not just something that is just ethereal and we're like, oh yeah, we know that. Or we believe it, but we don't really understand what that entails as you begin to manifest as a son of God. Um, so scriptures we have here, John 5, 12 to 21. John 12, 49 to 50, John 16, 12 to 14. Um, and these scriptures really show how and why a manifested decree works, what is behind a manifested decree works, right? It's not just, yes, I have faith, so therefore that will work. No, that's not how it works. You understand? And many of us have been taught that, but, you know, as you mature, there's something else. So I'll read a portion of, I'll read one of the scriptures, a portion of that. That's John chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. I'm reading from the LITV version again. Then they asked him, Who is the man who told you, lift up your cot and walk? Verse 13, But he did not know the one who cured him. For a crowd being in that place, Jesus had withdrawn. After these things, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Sin no more, that a worse thing not happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that Jesus is the one making him well. And because of this, the Jews persecuted Jesus and lusted to kill him because he did these things on a Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father works until now and I work. Because of this, therefore, the Jews lusted the more to kill him. For not only did he break the Shabbat, but also called God his own father, making himself equal to God. Verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son is not able to do anything from himself 
except what he may see the Father doing. For whatever that one does, talking about the Father, these things also the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows to him all things which he does. And he will show him greater works than these in order that you may marvel. For even as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. And literally, that is how and why manifested decree works. Manifested decrees work, and the reason they work and how they work is not because you have faith. Faith is important. We know that. You have to believe in Christ. You have to believe in him. You have to believe in his word he's given you. But more importantly, Christ had to, I mean, first of all, you know, they were upset that he performed a miracle on the Shabbat, on the holy day, right? But they were even more upset that he equated himself to the father, calling himself a son. He didn't say, I'm the father. He said, I'm a son. And like, automatically, in the Jewish tradition, they understood when you say you are a son, you are elevating yourself to a position with the father. And that's important. When we say we are sons of God, mature sons of God, we are getting to a point where we're like him, as he is, as we spoke in our first session, dispensation, dispensation of sons. The point of maturity is to mature to a point where you are as he is. That's the point of maturity in our journey of discipleship. Um, and what he's talking about here is he only does what his father does, what his father shows him and what his father says. That is the key to why manifested decrees work, according to what Christ says here. That it's not just because he believed, and it's not just meant to be because you believe. It works because you see what the Father is doing, or in this case, we are to see what Christ is doing through the Holy Spirit. We are to hear what Christ is saying through the Holy Spirit, and we execute. Hence, whatever we decree, whether those decrees be in word format or in action format, you know, they get executed. Throughout millennia, as mature sons of God allowed the Holy Spirit to manifest through them, the Lord's strategies and model are evident from a holistic perspective. It is debatable if these individuals were aware of the model of Christ, but what is clear is every committed disciple and imitator of Christ can see this model through the help of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, one of the things I want us to do is also to look at instances. You know, sometimes we can talk about these things, oh, gateway temples, oh, we have to release, we have to manifest as mature sons of God through a model that is a gateway temple because Christ manifested like that. That's fantastic. That's amazing. But can we see examples of that in scripture, right? You know, it, it, it helps, you know. We need something that we can anchor these revelations to. You know, yes, we know Christ did it, but you know, are there other examples that we can lean into to glean a lot of truths from? So I'm going to go through some instances. Um, they're quite a lot, but I'm just going to pick one, two, three, four. You see them in your slides. I say four, actually. They're five, but two of them are paired together. So. And the instances revealed in scripture highlight the diversity of the Son of God and the Holy Spirit in the way they manifest through mature sons of God throughout millennia. They cannot be mimicked. That's, these instances cannot be mimicked. You can't just take an instance of how somebody did something in scripture like, okay, I want to do it like that. It doesn't work like that. You understand? It's not a copy and paste. It's not cut and paste. No, it's not. It's not how it works. It requires a relationship. You know, variables are different. Error is different. You know, things happening is different. What the Lord is doing it is different. The sub-plan of what is unfolding is different. So there are just too many variables that it requires an intimate relationship to know exactly, not exactly in terms of to the finest detail, but to have a proper idea, a, a holistic picture of what the Lord is doing so that 
you can see how an instance in Bible might encourage you or you can glean some information from it. But the final say is the Holy Spirit giving you the final say as to how to manifest. That is the final say. So, um, like I said, the instances cannot be mimicked that we are looking at, but they can serve to encourage us to get even more intimate with him. Um, there are a couple of people here. We've got Eve, Noah, you know, of instances of manifestation of sons of God. And what I try to do here is I try to pick instances across the Old Testament and the New Testament, just to give us a complete picture that the Lord has been trying to do this. Some of it was hidden, was concealed, where people didn't have the full understanding. Neither did they have the full revelation of what was going on because Christ also wasn't revealed. But the ones we have here, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, um, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, Hannah, David, Daniel, Esther, Mary, and Jesus. Mary being the mother of Jesus here. So I'm just going to go through five. Like I said, two of those will be paired, so there'll be four instances I'm going to highlight. Um, and the way I've done the instances is so that we can get some sort of understanding and see how it's been it's been done and how we can actually glean this information. I've put up, I created a some sort of matrix or table just with the instances, highlighted specific scriptures, and these scriptures fall into three main categories. And why I've done that is to help us, whilst we're studying, to also be able to use these tools to look into other examples and other instances and also in our lives, how we can, these tools will also help us apply in our lives when we have to manifest, on, when the Holy Spirit is manifesting through us. They will serve as guides and through it. So the first category will be the decree and declaration. The decree here being what the Holy Spirit has decreed to you. Um, and the declaration is your response to that in terms of your own declaration of that. And the second one will be the blueprint or pattern or model. That's the second category. What that is, is once the Lord makes a decree, either through prophecy or dreams or visions, and as you begin to collate them and they begin to get clearer, right, there is a blueprint into how he wants to manifest that. Sometimes you're only going to get chunks of it. You're going to get elements of it. Sometimes you get it in a large part of it, partial, and that could last from anything from one week to 10 years or however long the Lord is unfolding these things, right? And um, it's the blueprint or pattern or model. And the third category is the execution. And I've used these three categories to help us, to, these categories as tools to help us view these instances of manifestations of sons of God. Um, so the first person I pick is um, Joshua. Um, and Joshua chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, that's the portion of scripture where we'd apply the decree and declaration and we'd apply the blueprint or pattern or model and we'll apply the execution. So the decree and declaration for Joshua. Um, Joshua received from the Lord Joshua, um, and Joshua decreed. So that is Joshua chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Um, you can go through that scripture and open it and see that in your own time. Um, the blueprint or pattern or model, that's also from Joshua 3, verses 8 and verses 11 to 13, Joshua revealed the blueprints in the instructions he issued. So based on that portion of scripture, there were blueprints or a pattern embedded in the instructions um, he issued. And obviously the execution, that's verses cha Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. And Joshua, the priest and the Israelites followed the instructions to the letter. And that's how they executed it. Um, we're going to have this up. It's gonna, the slides are going to be shared so you can follow um, you know, our fabulous um, visual department would ensure that this slide is put up um, so that you can follow it as we're talking about it. And um, so the next instance of manifestation of the Son of God is Rahab. Very interesting. Um, Joshua chapter 2, 8 to 19. Using those lenses again, of the, or the tools, the decree and declaration. And at some point, Rahab discovers God's decrees. Rahab receives it, Rahab declares it. We see that in 
Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. You know, when the Israelites were moving and they left um, the Red Sea, you know, the, God had already promised Moses and told him to tell them, to tell the Israelites that the, his dread will go ahead of them into the promised land. That by the time they get there, the people will already be dreading them, will already be afraid. Like, like I'm systematically doing this process. So Rahab acknowledges that and says that they've already been afraid of them, right? And she says what her fear of their God did to her caused her to want to align herself to her. So the decree she made was the dread of God had gone ahead. We'd heard about you. Our whole, the whole of Jericho is afraid. The whole of Canaan is afraid. Um, and, you know, she declares that. Um, the blueprint and pattern and model, um, that's in Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Rahab's kindness was part of the blueprint of complete surrender, right? She was kind to these spies that came. She acknowledged them. She acknowledged their God who was orchestrating something different on the earth, right? Who was taking of theirs and giving to them because he had apportioned it that way. She acknowledged him. She acknowledged their promise, the promised land as theirs, and she aligned herself to it. She found the blueprint by surrendering to what God was doing with the Israelites. That was part of her blueprint. And she also demonstrated that by being kind to them, by taking care of them, feeding them and all. And the execution, how did she execute this blueprint of complete surrender? Verses Joshua chapter 2, verses 15 to 19 tells us, Rahab let the spies down. She gave directions. And she was to tie the scarlet thread on her window when they returned, right? To take. So that was part of her execution. And one of the reasons why I'm coming up with these instances is to give varied instances of the manifestation of sons of God and God manifesting through mature ones to have surrendered to him. The next is, and this is the pair, I'm talking about Mary the mother, Jesus, and John the apostle. And that's found in John 19 verses 25 to 27. And this was when Christ was on the cross. He was about to surrender his spirit. He was about to give up his spirit. Um, John 19, 25 to 27, we're using those lenses, those tools again, the decree and declaration, the blueprint or pattern or model, and the execution. And I, I, I love this scripture, you know, I really just, you know, I really love the way Christ can just be doing something and he'll just say something randomly in the middle of something, right? He just says this in the middle of being on the cross, about to give up his spirit, and like, ah, hey, John, and <laughs> he says, hey, mom, yeah. You see that guy there? Yeah? He's your son now. Hey, you, John. <laughs> you see that lady over there? She's not your mother. You know, I, you know, just, you know, anyways, sorry. That's just me having fun with myself and Lord. But I just really love how amazing Christ is able to do that, right? Something universal is going on. It's like, oh, yeah, mom. Yeah, that's now your son. I have other children. Let's just get this clear. Mary had other kids, right? You know, the book of James in the New Testament was Jesus's half-brother or step-brother, right? right? That's not the James that we know about. The other James was killed. John's brother, John the Apostle's brother. That James was Jesus' brother. So it's not like um, Jesus didn't have siblings. You know, the Bible tells us that the mother and the siblings came to look for him at some point in time. So there were other siblings, right? So he had other men. There were other boys, right? And Jesus tells her, this is now her son. Very instrumental. And I believe that's because of the intimacy John had with him. But that's a different story altogether. So the decree and declaration in John 19, 25 to 27, 27, in verses 26 to 27 in the book of John chapter 19, Yeshua made a decree to Mary, his mother, and to John. I just described that. The blueprint or pattern or model. Within the decrees Mary and John received, the Lord ensured the blueprint was embedded in the decree. That was, they would begin to live together as mother and son. And the execution the Bible tells us, I mean, we know it was not immediately at the cross why Christ's spirit was given, but almost 
effective immediately after all of that incident, right? It says, John moved Mary into his home, though she had other children. That's the execution. And the final instance is Jesus, of course, and I'm talking about specifically something different, and that's the blueprint of the prophecies from Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Luke 4, 16 to 21, which is which is Christ reading Isaiah 61 in, in the synagogue, and John chapter 5, 19 to 21. So the decree and declaration, and this comes, and why I've used Jesus here is I wanted to bridge the old covenant with the new covenant, the prophecies from the old and their manifestations in the new, and how everything comes seamlessly into one in Christ, but also in how he manifested what God had decreed. Isaiah the prophet declares how Christ will operate on the earth. That's the decree he received. That's found in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. The Spirit of God will be upon him. The Spirit of the Lord will manifest in pairs also. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of power and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And obviously the Spirit of the Lord. The seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which are also evident in the seven lamps before the throne of God, as discovered in Revelation. Um, the blueprint or pattern or model the blueprint was explained in the prophecy of how the Spirit will manifest in Christ and how Christ will operate on the earth. So we see that in Isaiah 11. It says he will not judge with his eyes. Um, you know, it tells us how he's going to judge. And um, also in Isaiah 61, we begin to see what some of the things he's going to do, exchanging garments of, 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 um, what's it called? of mourning, garments of joy. You know, we begin to see specific things on how this Christ, this Jesus would manifest and operate. The blueprint he would follow. So that's very interesting. Even Christ followed some sort of model or blueprint that was already revealed. Do you understand? Um, and of course, the execution. Jesus gives insights on how he operated on the earth. John 5, 19 to 21. So that's it on the dispensation of sons. And what we have now, we have the discussion points. Um, and um, there are a couple of questions I'd like us to go through in our groups. Um, and there is a paragraph of some points made to kind of like close out the whole um, series, the whole dispensation of songs. And I'll just read that. Yeshua highlighted the transition that was and is occurring on numerous dimensions. The physical end of a revealed era was one of the um, transitions that was happening. And the progressive revelation that was occurring, the transition of the temple prototype to the actual temple, the beginning of the new mobile temples made of flesh, our flesh, lit by the light of the world, seasoned by the fire of the Holy Spirit, alive because of the breath of God, the manifestation of a new people, of a promise, of the initial plan for sons of God to mature into, the transition into the opportunity not, just, not to just be a believer, a follower, a disciple, a lover of God, or a mature son of God. Christ initiated an invitation to be a temple as he is. This invitation and his revelation was progressive in nature, where those who accepted and yielded to its terms will grow in conformation into his image as the Son of God. These ones will host his presence and will be conformed to the many facets of his identity as the Son of God. Stories.
just begun and fail you won't define me because that's what my father does yeah fail you won't define me because that's what my father does I really want to say thank you to everyone that has um, um, gone through these, through the series of the dispensation of Sons of God. And I'm thanking you not because it's me. I'm thanking you because, personally, I know how important it is to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord Himself, and for us to understand exactly what it is He was trying to do, what the plan was for humanity. It's so important that we understand that what Christ planned, what the Father planned, and what the Holy Spirit planned, you know, when they thought of us, when he thought of creating mankind, you know, they wanted us to be transformed into the image, to grow and mature into the image of the Son of God, and why that is, you know. So, you know, I want to say thank you for spending time with me, and um, I also pray that please, 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 I'm begging again, please go through the slides, read them, you know, ask the Holy Spirit to show you, ask the Holy Spirit to talk to you, you know, have your journal, have your notepad, take notes, ask the Holy Spirit to keep on unpacking everything. I do know that there's been a lot of information in these series, but I've tried as much as possible to put as much information that could help people on their journey as they get even more intimate with the Son of God, Yeshua. Thank you very much and have a lovely day.